So, you see the graphic here. Today's uh, message is entitled Step Into the Arena. For those of you that are listening online, there's a picture of a, 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 a ballerina's feet. And on the left foot is obviously a ballerina slipper, shoe, whatever it may be. And on the right side is the shoe that is off. So now you see, right, just the actual foot. And if you take a look at the actual foot that is exposed, you see that it's damaged, it's beat up, it's got bandages, it's, 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 it's been working. And so what I felt the Lord was just uh, sharing with this is stepping into this arena, which we will obviously be talking about, is this. A lot of people only see what's on the, I guess if you're looking at it, on the right. You see the nice polish, right? You see the, the beautiful, dainty foot of the ballerina. Very few people understand what it takes to be a professional ballerina. Like you remove that shoe and you're going to see that there's been a lot of work, a lot of sweat, a lot of pain, a lot of energy that has been put into it. And so in many regards, when we're taking a look about, about the work of the Lord and what the Lord is doing on planet Earth, a lot of times we just see the nice flashy part on the right. But we don't necessarily understand the sweat equity that has gone into being whatever it is you're being. In this case, it's going to be a ballerina. And so to understand this principle, I want to take a look at the, the book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The words of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity in concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. <clears throat> And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. If we go now to Nehemiah 2, verse 17, we see this. Then I said to them, the people who brought the report, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the walls of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. So, we take a look at the, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and what we have here is, it's um, the 5th century. So it's 5th century BC, 500 years before the Christos, before the Messiah, before the Christ. Okay, 500 years uh, before the coming of the Lord. Uh, they, Nehemiah and the Jewish people, are living inside of the empire of Babylon, because Babylon has come and has taken the Jewish people into captivity. Okay? Uh, they are living in a place called Shushan. And if anyone knows the story of Purim, a lot of these terms should actually be like, oh, yeah, okay. This is where Esther and Mordecai are going to end up. Okay? So this is, this is uh, around that. Uh, today, Shushan would be, interesting enough, uh, modern-day Iran. So here they are, Jews have been taken into slavery, essentially, from Israel have been brought to Iran, and they're there. And some of the Jewish people escaped. 
And they escaped and they went to Jerusalem and they're there and they report back to Nehemiah, who's like a pretty big dude amongst the Jewish community. Look, the walls of Jerusalem are down. The gates have been burned with fire. The holy city of God has been destroyed. Okay? <clears throat> uh, it takes place in the month of Kislev. Now, uh, the Hebrew calendar is based off of the, uh, the moon, lunar calendar. So this year, Kislev would be uh, November 28th, would be the first day of Kislev. So it's actually like around this time, it's around the autumn time that all of this news is getting to Nehemiah in Babylon. And so I'm thinking about Nehemiah, and of course I'm reading through the story of Nehemiah, which are several chapters, so I'm not going to read through all of them, we're not going to teach out of all of the things, but man, if you're, if you're looking to get like stoked to like build some walls in your life, to build up things that the Lord has for you, you should read Nehemiah and Ezra, it's like so amazing. <clears throat> but for us, you know, what I was reminded of with all this is that essentially the, the story of, of Nehemiah uh, was reminding me of really uh, this story of uh, this ballerina. Because Nehemiah and Ezra are eventually going to build up the walls of Jerusalem. And people are like, yeah, that's awesome, it's great, it's so spiritual. But like, people forget that in order to build up these walls, there's a lot of sweat equity, there's a lot of hard work that went into all of this. A lot. Just like a lot of hard work goes into being a ballerina. And in fact, through all this, um, I was re remembering um, <clears throat> the life of a U.S. president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, talking about sweat equity. And uh, I get stirred, and maybe it's because I'm a history teacher, I get it, but I get stirred when I hear about his life. And so... If I may, I'm, I'm going to preach out of Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, and I'm also going to preach out of Teddy Roosevelt's life. I mean, throughout his whole life, uh, he, uh, he taught Sunday school to little kids. Pretty beautiful. He was a God-fearing man. Uh, but let's, uh, let, let's just, I mean, this is, this is unbelievable when you take a look at the essence of hard work. I mean, this guy's president, his face is on Mount Rushmore. Like, he's got to be someone pretty legit. <clears throat> and I promise, there's a point to this. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was born a rich kid in New York with horrible, horrible asthma. I mean, really bad where he would be late at night with his parents. His parents would be cuddling him, trying to just like pray and like hope that he's going to breathe. That bad. Okay. <clears throat> and so uh, at some point, he was like seven, eight years old. He's like this frail, ridiculously frail little boy. Horrible asthma. His dad goes up to him and says, son... Um, your body does not make you, you make your body. Uh, and Teddy Roosevelt like completely revered his father. Uh, and so what he did is he took, he took on this notion, which later on in life he calls the strenuous life. I don't know what's going on here, but someone is moving my stuff. He adopts this concept of what's known as the strenuous life. He as a little boy, he'd play these crazy games. <clears throat> he, he was so hard-headed to make him his body. And as a little boy, he would go outside and he would look down, his, the, 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 down the, the cityscape of New York and he would set his eyes on the horizon. He would see a building or something that he set his eyes on. And he would say, I am going to walk straight towards that object and I refuse to go around it. 
Like his parents were getting reports of their 10-year-old, 11-year-old boy climbing up a two-story house. He's like, I'm not going around the house. I'm going to climb up the house, over the house, and down the other side. Comes to a tree, climbs up the tree, over the tree, not around the tree, and he just is like, I will make my mind and my body like flint. I'm not going to let anything push me aside. And he does this, and he does all this crazy stuff. He starts to learn boxing. He's like this little puny little boy. <laughs> he's so sick that he's homeschooled because he can't go to school because of the asthma. Uh, but, you know, a guy that's homeschooled and has asthma eventually is going to get uh, sent to Harvard. He goes to Harvard after being homeschooled uh, without any traditional education from, from a school. Uh, and, and then he becomes a boxing champion when he's there. Uh, all this kind of crazy stuff. But what's really, really heartbreaking is that after he graduates, he gets married. <clears throat> and um, he, he, it's unbelievable. On Valentine's Day, within 14 hours of each other, both his wife and his mom die. Essentially, his uh, wife uh, died giving birth to the child. Within 14 hours, his mom and his wife die. He's totally broken because he's like such a romantic, right? Um, that he's like, I, I got to get out. He takes his daughter, gives it to his sister. He's like, you need a watcher. I need to bug out. So he bugs out. Now, where does he go? Where would a rich boy go who's suffering with, with health conditions? He goes to the Dakotas in like 1880. He becomes a cowboy for three years. Uh, people call him Four Eyes. Uh, good thing he knew how to box. He was in a bar one time. And guys like, oh, Four Eyes is going to buy us all drinks. And he says, no, I'm not. He gets into a fight. And uh, knocks the guy out. And people are like, oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> someone is, you know, because everyone knows he's like this wealthy guy. Uh, the, these three guys steal his boat on his ranch. And, they, and they, they take off with his boat. Teddy Roosevelt, now by himself, goes three weeks upstream to find these robbers, if you will, in the dead of winter in the Dakotas by himself. He finds them, captures them. By law, he's allowed to hang them. He's like, I'm not going to hang them. I'm bringing them to justice. For the next three days, he takes the guys on, puts them on the boat in the winter, goes downstream, doesn't sleep a wink because it's just him versus those three, and brings them to the trial. Not bad for an asthmatic kid. Um, then... He comes back to New York after he has his time of processing, and he, he puts on 50 pounds in three years. 50 pounds of muscle, just whatever you want to call it. He's unrecognizable by people. And he runs for governor of New York. Runs for governor of New York, he wins. Starts cleaning up all the corruption in town. The big political bosses are like, we hate this guy, we got to get him out. So the big bosses of politics uh, convince the president, the guy that's running for president, you need to get this guy, Teddy Roosevelt, to be vice president so he's out of New York. Because back then, vice presidents, like, that's where you went to, like, die. Like, vice presidents didn't do anything back then. So he becomes vice president. Becomes vice president, he's like, why did I do this job? You're like, you do nothing. So he's totally freaking out. So he goes up into the, the mountains of, uh, of New York, up in the Adirondacks, by himself, to go hiking for several weeks. When he's up there, President McKinley is assassinated. They have to go find the vice president, and they're like wandering around the wilderness looking for this guy. And they finally stumble across him, and now he has to hike 12 hours down out of the mountains, get on horseback to finally get to a train, to finally get down to D.C. 
As president, he single-handedly starts the U.S. Navy. He goes after big corruption and the monopolies that are ruling the country. Um, he then gets a Congressional Medal of Honor for his uh, time in the Spanish-American War. Then he gets a Nobel Peace Prize for stopping the Russian-Japanese War. He then uh, creates one million miles of national parks, including Grand, the Grand Canyon. Then he decides to create the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, while also building the Panama Canal. Now he does all of this while reading one to three books a day, while wrestling legitimately, legitimately a pet bear in the White House. He would bring a bear in, they would muzzle it, and he would wrestle it to stay in shape. Then also after that, he would, uh, you know, while, while doing all this, he would also um, have a, a, a boxing mat in the White House he brought in. Uh, he, would, he would do boxing. Uh, he went up against a, a military aide, and they were boxing, and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's the youngest president ever at age 42, and there's like this 24-year-old, like, tough military guy boxing him, gets punched in the left eye, goes blind, he's like, oh, I guess I can't box anymore. He admits that he's an elderly man. He says, instead of boxing, I want to take up martial arts. So he brings in a martial art expert from Japan to live inside the White House to train. That's a president, man. He's running for president a third time. He's giving a speech. An assassin goes seven feet away from him, shoots a bullet into his chest. The bullet goes into his eyeglass case, then into the copy of his speech, gets lodged in the side of his ribs, a quarter inch from his heart. Everyone's like, oh my gosh. He takes off his jacket. There's blood coming all down. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure if you understand the severity of this situation. I've just been shot. But I'm here to give a speech. He gives a speech for the next 90 minutes, going totally pale, uh, and is about to faint. Finally, his aides are like, Mr. President, you need to go to the doctor. So he goes to the doctor. After being shot and giving a speech for 90 minutes, at point-blank range. After he's president, he's like, man, i got to do something. So he goes to Africa, shoots about 1,000 animals, donates them all to the Smithsonian. Then he's like, i got to do something. So he goes to the Amazon with his, with his son, Kermit. They're there, and they go on this river, and they discover a river that has never been seen before by white men. They are attacked for 40-something days along this Amazon River by these indigenous uh, peoples. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt cuts his leg, a uh, bad going after a canoe, infection sets in, he thinks he's going to die, he's 104 fever, he can't even get up, people are like, we're lost, we don't know what to do, so the guide says, every man for himself, he goes to his son and says, leave me here to die, his son is like, no, so his son, who's got a little bit of his father in him, takes Teddy Roosevelt up on his back, and they hike out of the Amazon, yeah, Comes back, loses 50 pounds from all these uh, tropical uh, diseases. Um, and so they ended up naming the river after him since he found it. Rio Tedero, the Teddy River. Uh, World War, he almost dies with that. World War I breaks out, he's 60 years old, he wants to fight. President Woodrow Wilson's like, you're not fighting, you're an president of the United States, you're 60 years old, you're an old man, you can't fight. So what happens here is his son, he had three sons, um, his one son goes off the fight, becomes a pilot, gets shot down, dies. The Germans take a picture of him and sends it to all of the Roosevelts in the United States with two bullets in his head. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, several 
months later, dies from a clotted artery uh, essentially coming out of his heart. Uh, some doctors say it was, it was an extension from the tropical diseases and malaria that he got when he was in the Amazon. Many of his contemporaries said, no, that couldn't kill Teddy. The only thing that could kill Teddy was a broken heart that his son had died. Whatever the case may be, uh, vice president at the time said death had to take him in his sleep. For if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. People said Teddy Roosevelt had this infectious smile. He was larger than life. They said when you shook his hand, when you were done shaking his hand, you had to shake and wring out his personality out of, his, out of your own clothes. And so the Lord was just impressing all this on me, and, and, and Teddy Roosevelt himself says this. This is where the infectious smile came from. This is where the vitality of life and desiring the strenuous life came from. He says this, Teddy Roosevelt, far and away the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. And if you do that, you're going to have an infectious smile. And so, you know, bringing this into biblical perspective is this. Have you found a work worth doing? And are you working hard at it? Have you yourself found a work that is so precious, that is so awesome, that your face is lit up because you're doing it? And are you working hard at it? Hmm. Now, Nehemiah and Teddy Roosevelt were men who chose to step into the arena of life. Now, unfortunately, my experience has been too many people sit on the sidelines of life. They choose not to step into the true arena of life. They sit on the sidelines, but as Teddy Roosevelt's father said, in some kind of changing of it, but see people, your life does not make you. You make your life. And I feel the Lord is just pressing on me to step into the arena. Step into the arena of life, people. Uh, Roosevelt's got this, probably his most famous speech called The Man in the Arena. It goes like this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again. Because there is no effort without error and no shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds? The man who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Just drop the mic and go home now. Let's break it down a little bit. The critic does not count. Sigma is for our own life. There are critics out there, but the critic doesn't count 
Because the critic is not in the arena. The critic is not in your life. They're outside of the arena, so then therefore they should have no voice. Yes, we may err, we may make mistakes, but there is no effort without making mistakes. At best, if you try new things and step into the arena of life, the best, you're going to reach high achievement. You're going to do this unbelievable thing. At worst, at least you dared greatly. But at least, he is not one of those cold and timid souls that know neither victory nor defeat. Now we take this, alright, fine, this is the president, fine, what's going on? But there's, there's, there's so much truth. A worthy cause. I, mean, I, I shouldn't be able to just stop here. A worthy cause. Are you working towards the worthy cause of the gospel? Are you just working toward the worthy cause of feeding your family and getting your house done? Like, we have the ultimate expression of worth and a cause that is connected with that. The preaching of the gospel to the lost. Showing love to the brokenhearted. Praying for people. Evangelizing. Prayer. Worship. Everything. It's such an unbelievable worthy cause. And it's that cause that will make you feel valued and that you're participating in something. He says, eh, no victory. Dude, victory is guaranteed in him. Like Satan has been defeated, it is finished, love never fails. You as a son or daughter of God, you shall know victory. Because the game is rigged. So, it's a notion here of, okay, did you find your worthy cause? And are you working hard at it? I'm just going to be honest with you. No. No. Now, I know you got to take up with the Lord. I'm looking at my life, I'm like, no. I haven't worked entirely in it the way that I should be. I still hold back a little bit. And we are the hands and feet of Jesus. All of creation is yearning for the sons of God to be made manifest. And if I was real with myself, if I looked at myself in the mirror, there's still things where I'm like, man, I am not daring greatly with God. And so here it is, man. Which kind of person are you? Are you in the arena? Or are you not in the arena? Hmm. Why do maybe people not step into the arena? If you're not in the arena of life, if you're not engaging in the worthy cause and daring greatly with God, why? Well, Ted Roosevelt tells us, in the arena you will be marred with dust and sweat.
Why are we not stepping into the arena? To be in the arena of life, you're going to be marred. You're going to be touched with dust, sweat, blood, hard work. It's a strenuous life. Now, I dare I say, I, I just want to, I want to actually welcome a strenuous life. Now, it's very ironic because most people shy away from the strenuous life. Most people want the easy life. Most people want the easy pursuit. Most people want to just sleep in. They don't want to wake up and engage the Lord. Most people just want to get by. And that's fine. But I want, to, I want to come to a place where I'm welcoming a more strenuous life. And that doesn't have to be stressful. It's just it's a life of, of purpose and, and being in the arena. Because the reality is, people who live easy lives rarely make history. Like, think about every person that you know about, and every person that you admonish, and every person that you're like, this guy, this gal is awesome. They faced difficulties. They had a tough life. But yet, most people are looking for this easy life. So, okay. Maybe we're not doing fully what the Lord is calling us to do. We're not stepping completely in the arena. Maybe you are. Like I said, it's between you and the Lord. Uh, and one reason is, look, man, it's, it's, it's a real tough life. Like, they're going to persecute you because they persecuted me. They're going to hate you because they hated me. Like, you have to lay down your life and pick up your cross daily. It's like, this is not an easy thing. And so that's one reason why you may not be, like, really stepping into what the Lord is calling you to. And, you know, there's another reason. The other, the other reason is there, there could be a fear of the critic. Well, there are two types of critics. There's the external critic and the internal critic. The external critic is what will people say about me? Well, here's the thing, man. If you're living for Jesus, it doesn't matter what the external critics are saying because they're not in the arena with you. But the more powerful critic is usually the internal one. But I can't. I can't share the gospel. I, I can't live a holy lifestyle. I can't do what the Lord is calling me to. Well, that's, that's actually a good thing. Uh, because God takes the weak vessels to astound the world with His glory. Those who need to rely on Him for Him to make the impossible possible. And so if you say, I can't do this stuff and I can't do the things that the Lord is calling me to and, and it's just too hard, it's too tough, it's actually a good place to be because every person that made history in the Bible had a strenuous life. They had a difficult life. They had obstacles to overcome. Because if you don't have obstacles to overcome, you're not going to make history. You name it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Ezekiel, Hezekiah, Nehemiah, the disciples. All of them have this kind of life. And so we open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, just to give some uh, context to what's going on here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. 
But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It's like so funny. People say like, well, I'm not really that smart. I know God chooses the people that are not very wise, but I can't really do this. I know those are the people that God has chosen. But, but, but I don't have the energy. I know that's the people that God uses so that no man and no flesh can glory. I know, but I have so much sin in my life. I know those are the vessels that God wants to use. There are three types of people. There are those people who choose to dare greatly with God and achieve. Then there are those who choose to dare greatly and fail. But in the kingdom of God, that's not really possible, as I said. Like if you dare greatly with God and you lean on him and you're doing what he's leading you into, you're not going to fail. And we as a church, you're not going to fail. And then there's a third group of people. And it seems to be very true in the Western world. There are those cold and timid souls who do nothing with their life. They do nothing. Now, what I mean by nothing, I mean they go to work, they put food on the table. That's great. That's great for this temple world. For life everlasting, it's like, whatever. Wow, you saved up money for your kid to go to college. Good job. Wow, you put a bunch of money on the table. Hey, good job. Now, that's good stuff. But if it's, just tra- if it's detracting from the things of the arena of the kingdom, and you build all up these kingdoms of men, and you make a whole bunch of money, but you have not impacted the power of the gospel on earth, it's all for naught. And it's very easy to hide and be a timid and cold soul by hiding behind the kingdoms of men. Where God is trying to ask you to bring you into the arena of the kingdom of God. And saying, come on, these are the things that are going to be everlasting. These are the things that are going to last. This is a tough message, man. I'm going to have a weird look. Look, man, the Lord is just tearing into me. He's like, come on, look at this guy, Teddy Rhodes, all the things he did with his life. There's an energy, a vitality to them. We need to get an energy and a vitality in the church again. Come on. I mean, we just, we just need it. We need it. Take a look at Nehemiah again. Chapter 2, 17, as I read earlier. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in. This is Nehemiah. How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Zeke, can you maybe get up on the piano? Just help me out here. We got to get the glory cloud coming. It's all good, Mario. God family ministry. You're on the family part. Well, let's read this again. 
Nehemiah said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. This is Nehemiah sitting in Babylon saying, saying, uh, uh, we're hearing reports, Jerusalem and the gates thereof are in ruins. The holy habitation of God, the internal capital of God is in ruins. It is a disgrace. It's a disgrace towards man and it's a disgrace towards God. It's a disgrace. You see, the spiritual walls of Philadelphia and Bristol are in ruin. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. There's poverty. There's drugs. There's fornication. There's prostitution. There's gang activity. They're in ruins. And it's a disgrace. Because our feet are here. And where we go, the power of the gospel must go. These signs shall follow those that believe. We're supposed to be going with such authority and such power. That where we step our feet, communities are completely changed. And so like Nehemiah's day, there's a cause. The walls, the spiritual walls of Philadelphia, the spiritual walls of Bristol, the spiritual walls of the town and the street that you live on need to be rebuilt. They need to be rebuilt and there needs to be workers to rebuild them. There needs to be workers, once again, like in Nehemiah's day, or even workers like this crazy Teddy Roosevelt that has the audacity to not just dare greatly with God, but to step into the arena and do greatly with God. The walls begin with one man, Nehemiah. And then Ezra, the scribe, comes along with Nehemiah and says, Man, we got to build up the walls. we got to make God's name a praise in Jerusalem again. And the word goes forth. And thousands and thousands of Jewish people leave Babylon and go to the place of the wilderness of Jerusalem. Everything's in ruins. I mean, there's no, you're not going to have your farms. You're not going to have your wine. You're not going to have your nice cobblestone streets. It's completely desolate. And once they all come, then, then, then the critics come in the story. You can't build the walls. You shouldn't do it. How can you do it? You don't have enough people to do it. Come on, you can't do it. Blah, 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 blah. And Nehemiah's like, I shall not listen. And then the critics turn into armies. All the critics get together and they raise weapons against Nehemiah and the Israelites, or rather the Jewish people at this point. But Nehemiah declares to the people to encourage them. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. Nehemiah 2.20 And if you're familiar with the story, in one hand they have a sword, and in the other hand they have a tool to build up the walls. They're working, building the walls, but they're also fighting the enemies of God. The scriptures say, and the walls of Jerusalem were built in 52 days. And so I want to get very real with you. I'm going to ask you a question. 
And don't do your like typical, you know, let's not do like the typical like, oh, I'm in a large group and of course I'm going to say yes. Don't, don't just say yes, man. We're talking about a strenuous life. We're talking sweat equity. We're talking waking up early to pray for your family, pray for your community. We're talking about like coming out to a Wednesday night prayer service or coming out to an identity class. We're talking about like doing things other than just a Sunday morning thing. We're talking about like sweat, hard work. There's a report, and the report is this. The walls of Bristol, the walls of Philadelphia are down. Will you join us? Will you join us? to rebuild the walls of Philadelphia and Bristol. It's a disgrace towards both God and man that there's that kind of poverty out there. There's that kind of crime, that kind of drug use. Will you choose to step into the arena, the arena of life, and build God a habitation in your life? and in your city. If you thought about it, and if you're willing to step into that arena, and not just dare greatly with God, but to do greatly with God, put in sweat equity, to get your hands marred with, 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 with stone and mortar, this would be a good time to say yes. Thank you, Will. Before a Nehemiah and before an arena, there was a song. A psalm. And the psalm was uh, taken from Psalm 137. This, this predates Nehemiah. By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The Jews are in captivity. The Babylonians, essentially the Persians, ask them, can you sing to us one of those lovely songs that we've heard about from your home? And their response is, how on earth shall I sing a song? Living in a foreign land, knowing that the walls of my God the walls are down. I can't sing a song. But you see what's in their heart is, 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 is a compulsion. A compulsion of remembrance of what God wants to do in their place. Babylon at the time was a land of abundance. It was a land of ease. It was a land of comfort. Even the Jews who were slaves rose up in rank and they were able to live in comfort and in ease. 
Now you got this crazy guy, Nehemiah, this crazy guy, Ezra, saying, leave the comfort and ease and come with me because there's a reproach in the land of our fathers. The reproach is God's habitation lays in ruins. Leave the comfort, leave the ease and come and be a part of building God a throne room. How can we sing an ordinary song How can we just seek the pleasures of life? How can we just do these things when we know that there are lost out there, that there's death out there, that there's poverty and drugs and gangs and sexual immorality? And so, Father, I pray right now that that song Psalm 137 will be birthed inside of our hearts. Not that we get completely crazy and off balance. Because yes, we do have to work and we have to pay for things and we have to steward our time and our money well. I know that. But Father, I pray that there will be a song inside of us that says, look, though the walls of Philadelphia and the walls of Bristol are down. And it's a reproach to my God. And I want to just, I want to, I want to, I want to step into the arena of life. I want to step into the things of God. And I want to dare greatly with you. And I want to do great things with you. And I want to believe with you. So I could see your name be a praise in my town. And a praise in my family. Father, I pray against laziness and against apathy. I, I pray against just getting by. I, I pray about, about just like, oh, I need to survive. I need to just pay my bill and I just need to go on to the next thing. Lord, I pray right now for a revival spirit. And a revival spirit is one who says, I look to the things of God. I look towards the kingdom of God and then all of these things shall be added unto me. Father, I pray for hearts, revived hearts that hunger and thirst for your habitation in Bristol. Your habitation in Philadelphia. Father, I pray against the asthmatic spirit. That spirit says, I'm too weak. I can't do it. Look at, my, look at my circumstances. This is just how I was made. I, I can't do this and I, I shouldn't do this. I'm afraid and I'm fearful and I don't have enough time. But I pray against that asthmatic spirit. We just speak to that asthmatic spirit, that, that apathy spirit. And we say, son... Daughter, your body does not make you. You make your body. Better yet, you don't make you. Jesus makes you. Father, I pray for a quickening in our spirit to desire to do a good work in you. To desire to see your kingdom go forth. 
a desire to be a part of that. To be men and women who step into the arena of life and do not sit on the sidelines looking in and saying, how do they do it? Come on, let's stand. See, can you just um, sing us whatever songs on your heart? Yes. vision is set higher our vision is above just filling our bellies our vision is above just just getting by and just seeking comfort but our vision would be gazing upon heaven and the glories of who you are our vision would be set on the calling the purposes of our life to proclaim the gospel to set captives free, to heal the sick, to change communities, to change cities, to change families, to change ourselves, oh God. Set our eyes on that, oh God. Come on, we, we just lay down the Isaacs of our life on the altar. Lord, all the promises you've given us, the comforts of this country, Lord, we're willing to lay it down to get in the arena, the arena of life, the arena of the kingdom. Souls getting saved, people being healed through infirmities, families being restored, drugs being kicked out of the land. I'm just going to invite you. If you feel that in your life you need to set your vision higher, if you feel in your life that in some way you've just simply sought out a life of ease, that you pursued comfort, and your decisions in life have always been just seeking the easy way, seeking the place of comfort, and you haven't chosen the path of making history, the path of sometimes a little bit more difficult of a life. A life of laying down your life down at the cross. Your vision being kingdom vision, not earthly vision. I just want to invite you to come on down and we'll pray for you. We'll just release that in you. But you can't come down wishy-washy. You've got to come down saying, yes, yes, I want to get into the arena. 
I want to box a couple rounds with the world. I want to have my hands bruised a little bit, a little dirty. If you want that kind of fire in your belly, if you want that fire of Nehemiah, if you want that fire of Nehemiah, if you want that fire of Teddy Roosevelt, Come on down. We're just gonna just gonna impart it to you. Lift your vision higher. I like seeing men come down. Well, this is not an easy prayer. This is a prayer that says, I seek the hard way, if it need be. But we know that there is a grace and that there is a peace to it. Paul the Apostle could have just stayed in Judea, but he chose a more difficult and strenuous path. And he made history. I'm going to close out service. You guys can head downstairs if you like. You can stay in the presence. But I just encourage you. If you want the same spirit that lived and resided inside of Nehemiah, that you would come down. If you want to be a person that just wants to go multiple rounds with the world and beat the world into submission through love because of the grace of Jesus and the empowering of His Holy Ghost. It's time. It's time to get filled with Holy Ghost fire. Holy Ghost fire. Have a wonderful week.